Hello, balls of magic. Welcome back to How to Be Queer. My name is Alex. I use they, them pronouns. Hi, Alex. Hi, Kimmy. It's my name is Kim. I use she, her pronouns. Welcome <laughs> back to the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a hot second, but we have a lots of wonderful things in store for you. And um, we have an interview to share later on. Yeah. Well, let's yeah. get, let's get first, let's first get into it. So yeah. we took the summer off. We did. Because it was, life. It was necessary. It was necessary. And we just, yeah, it was, um, it was a, a nice intentional break. Mm-hmm. And we asked ourselves the question, do we want to keep doing our podcast? We did. We asked the question. And then when we didn't have an answer, we paused and then we asked again and we asked again and we asked again. We did the internal reflections. And we did. And we do. We do very much. It's really fun. It is really fun. But here's where we're at with it. We have, we're actually going to head a little bit in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- listen, we still hear and we still queer and we're still going to be how to be queer. Change. And that's not going to change. But we have um, an opportunity, which we'll be sharing about a little bit more as the weeks go on, mm-hmm. of someone who wanted to partner with us in a little bit more of an intentional way. Mm-hmm. Um. And so we are headed in that direction. It's so exciting. It is really exciting. And so in the meantime, if you're a longtime listener, you may have noticed that we have um, changed up the amount of podcasts that are available at any one time. Mm-hmm. And if you're a new listener, I guess we'll share a little bit at some point to get you kind of caught up on who we are and why we're here on How to Be Queer. Yes, we'll do a... Uh, maybe an alphabet mafia or a, you know, Alex and Kim part two. Yeah. We'll do an Alex and Kim part one, two, three. I mean, our, yeah. it just keeps going and going and going. Yeah. So if you are new to us, hi, welcome. We are um, Alex and Kim. We're we, married. We're married. We've been married for, it'll be two years in November. We are co-parenting four children mm-hmm. <laughs> ages 17 down to 10. Yeah. And our podcast came to light because we found that we're both in our mid forties mm-hmm. and we both found, I may be a little bit on the later side of that, but we both found that our upbringing of Gen Xers queerness was so unbelievably invisible. It was just erased for us. Yeah. And a big part of our adult lives has been stepping into being queer yeah. So stepping how, into the light, stepping into the light. So how to be queer when you've been in a world of heteronormativity and how, how do you just claim yourself and yeah. be yourself? That's what our podcast is about. So welcome. Yeah. We want to really um, make it accessible and have these, we, we, we put it in the summary of the podcast, kitchen table conversations about being queer in a heteronormative world. Um, you'll hear day-to-day experiences that we have in our own lives and and then also t- t- taking it a step further of how to be a better ally and things like that. And sometimes just like just topical stuff of like sometimes we love to talk about like what shows we're watching and how queer are they? Yeah. Cuz we watch a lot of queer shit. We're we're just humans just like you. <laughs> um so thank you for coming along with us. So on today's episode do you want to tell them who's on today? We have Christina Michaels. She is a transgender woman who is, gosh, she's many, many things. Amazing, um, magical human. My body and mind is just um, 
flooded with all the all, all the rainbow magic um, after talking with her. And so she is a dancer. Uh, she was in ballet for a number of years, cl- a classically trained um, ballet dancer, um, owns the Queer Dance Project, and then wrote a book about vaginoplasty. And that was enlightening to learn yeah, about. Yeah, bottoms. Um, and she she and she used the word bottom surgery. Just goes into the you know, pre-surgical preparation, um, all sorts of health and wellness things, emotional, physical, spiritual, medical, just really covers the nitty gritty. She really does. And so I'm going to put like a little bit of like a trigger warning on this. If you're not like super comfortable hearing about medical stuff, like maybe this isn't the one, but I would tell you like, please persevere through it and listen. Um, I will say as a cis woman and and just as a reminder, cis is not an insult. (laughs) Cis means that I'm cisgender or I identify with the gender that was assigned to me at birth. It's not an insult. And I just have to say that again, but as a cis woman, and I think someone maybe outside and I actually, and, and Christina kind of talks about this, that sometimes this information is not even accessible to people inside the, or inside the community. Mm -hmm. There's so much, I don't know. Yeah. Um. And so I, I really, if, even if you are someone who's like, oh, I don't really like hearing about surgeries. Like I would tell you, just, just give it a listen and yeah. see what you might learn and um, just understand on a deeper level, someone's lived experience. There's always value in that. Yeah. I think she really highlights um, how as a society, especially in Western medicine, how we are, we, t- we are taught to be scared of, of bodies and taught to not know except the cisgender straight body and even a cisgender straight white body. And um, she just really, you know, wants to dismantle some of the, the, the fear and the like, we're just in bodies. And it's just, obviously it speaks to my kind of like the work that I do too with movement and bodies, but it's really quite fascinating. So, so that's coming up. So um in the meantime, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? I know it's been a long time. It's been like since we took we took July and almost all of August, yeah. most of June away from the podcast. Yeah, just that you'll you'll be hearing from us more consistently, and that um, we're excited to sh- share with you as we go and as we as it is revealed to us as well. You'll be hearing what's happening. Yeah, I just want to normalize. Like it's actually okay to take a break sometimes. Yeah, but we're still here. We're still here and definitely queer. Well, you're like triple queer, I'm double a, queer. What do you consider I, yourself? I have multiple memberships to the Alphabet Mafia subscription. <laughs> you're a lifetime, you're a lifetime member. I'm a lifetime member. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, enjoy um our time that we spent with Christina. I know we did. And uh we'll talk to you soon. Here we go. And without further ado, Christina Michaels. Hello, Balls and Magic. Welcome back to How to Be Queer podcast. My name is Alex. I use they, them pronouns. Hey there. Hi. It's Kim, your wife. (laughs) I use she, her pronouns. And if you have just popped back in with us, we are on with Christina Michaels. And we are so excited, listeners, to share just a little bit of Christina's story and I'm, I am, I'm fangirling a little bit. Mm-hmm. How about you? Well, I, wait, you're not fangirling. You're fan humaning. Fan-daying. Yeah. Fan-daying. There we go. 
Um, so I'm going to read you guys a little bit about Christina and then we'll jump in. But Christina identifies as transgender female and her pronouns are she, her, her, she, her, hers. Remember guys, we're a highly edited podcast. So you get all my mistakes. Um, she has been an artist for over 30 years, first socialized as a male ballet dancer with a professional career of 12 years, then as a classical ballet teacher, character artist, choreographer for another 23. She opened the Queer Dance Project as a dream to offer classical ballet dance and movement to the LGBTQIA community. Um, Christina, you began your ballet training right here in Colorado Springs. Well, not here, but in, in the state, which we call Colorado in Colorado Springs. You graduated from high school. You went to Seattle to study at the Pacific Northwest Ballet School. Um, and then you studied with the School of American Ballet for two summers. But being socialized as a male dancer, you then began your apprenticeship, apprenticeship with the Pacific Northwest Ballet. Then you entered the Cours de Ballet. Um, wanting to expand your classical ballet perspective, you were given a contract with the National Ballet of Canada, um, and you were given a number of different soloist roles. And then, wow, you've got like a long list. You were in Virginia, um, in the Virginia Ballet, and the in the Rich Rich Richmond Rich. Ballet of Virginia, and you've been able to use all of this vast experience to achieve such lead roles. And I'm gonna pronounce, I hope I'm, I, I can do the, Romeo and Juliet um, is one of the ones you did. You have a joy of the work that you did with amazing choreographers. I don't think I'm gonna pronounce this person's name right, but Val Canaparoli. Yeah. Oh, I did say it right, go me. And William Salu. Yeah. Oh, look at me. So, uh, Solo, William Solo. Got it, I did not say that right, okay. Yeah, William um, Solo. So you have taught ballet and dance and movement from ages six to 90 for 25 years. Ballet, modern, contemporary, creative movement, partnering in ballroom. You have been in two different countries and in three to, or four different companies. Um, wow. I mean, you've done an awful lot and you're the author of a book. Yeah. Do you want to say the name of it? There it is. Yep. The Adventures. It's Is it vaginoplasty? I know. I've heard vaginoplasty. I've heard vaginoplasty. It's, I've heard it pronounced both. You can make the A long or soft. How would you say it? I say it vaginoplasty, but a vaginoplasty will also be uh, the common terminology. So here's the thing, Balls of Magic, like, I don't even know how we're gonna not just dive right in with all with all the things, Christina, we asked you, do you want to talk about Queer Dance Project? Do you want to talk about vaginoplasty? And we want to talk about both. So are you good to talk about both? Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. Well, so tell us more about you. Where do you want to begin? Um... Huh, wow, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know, Queer Dance Project is more of like a humanitarian effort. I actually won an award from the Human Rights Campaign and in Showtime Television last year. Um, it's called the Queer to Stay, um, and it was an award they give out about $10,000 to recipients. And three Colorado businesses actually got it. Uh, a brewery over by Federal Heights, or no, the uh, 
Regis, um, myself, and then another organization. And the other organization was a web company that specialized in um, kind of uh, mapping out your pre-surgical transition insurance requirements and all of that sort of thing, since it's such a kind of a such a dark area for some of us trans women who might have insurance or have some partial insurance and yeah um and then uh, so the queer dance project i teach that about three days a week i also specialize in acupuncture um and oh. that's where the book really comes from i started and like a little bit of the book i started working with trans men um to help reduce their scars from top surgery about 10 years ago um and so that led me to like all these like wow how can i what else can i do and then i saw my first uh vaginal plasty patient and i was like this is great i started doing acupuncture on them and realizing as a trans woman the difficulties it is in the small business community um i was undermined for the first two and a half years i was in denver as a business owner by other trans community members um so that was kind of like really hard on my like psyche um, because I thought I was in a trans-positive environment and it kind of got dangerous. Um, and then, uh, so then I, <clears throat> when I started to get on my list for my, my bottom surgery, I was like, well, I'm going to document everything and talk about everything, how to prepare for it, what to expect. And then I was going to integrate all the healing stuff because I did massage for 15 years. I have, these hands have about 15,000 hours of work with patients. It's actually up to about 20 or 20,000 hours of body work with patients. Um, and so my, my acupuncture career just kind of led me to write the book. Um, Presently, I teach Qigong to seniors, which is a meditative Qigong, um, and I teach it to LGBT seniors. I teach dance to seniors, and on my part-time, I actually do, um, I work with stroke victims and uh, senior care and at-home care agencies to help um, take care of our seniors and elderly. So, um, and then the book, I'm, the book's led me to continuing education module, which I'm nearly done, which I'll be sending into a national certification board for them to, it's it's going to govern safe zones on top of every surgery that every trans person gets. Um, wow. And it's going to, it's going to give all, it's going to be a four part slideshow on how to treat these folks, how to treat us. Um, and then that hopefully will lead me to like our book, the book that is um, called Trans Bodies, Trans Selves is a great book. And there's a whole chapter on there that I know I could help expand on. And that's all the surgeries that, that trans folks go through. So um, the second book is really toying around with like expanding how, so most of our trans family members are alone, right? When they're um, getting through this and often they're in dangerous households. Um, or not so healthy households and toxic households. Um, so, and they don't know, they're going through hearsay, they're looking on Reddit, and the books I'm writing are gonna be about, like, this is what to do. On week two, you can do this. On week three, you can do this. You can do these acupuncture points. You can do these acupressure points. So there's gonna be more of a guide to healing, um, a, a trans-bodied guide to healing are through our surgeries. And then also what I'm running into now is a lot of my trans male patients have a thick blood issue. Their blood gets really too thick um, mm -hmm. and it causes some um, like a buildup of red blood cells. So I'd like to work with some herbs, um, Chinese herbs to build a way to help move some of that. The issues that I run into is most trans men, if they haven't had um, 
corrective bottom surgery um, to remove ovaries and that sort of thing, um, the herbs will cause bleeding. And that breakout bleeding is not necessarily a healthy thing for our dysphoria. So um, I'm just trying to find ways to help our trans community um, in a way that hasn't really been done yet. So. Yeah, I, I remember my doctor, when I started on testosterone, talking about that for the, with, with the blood thickening and, and I'm like, yeah. well, I have kind of have like a blood disorder so you know it's then any i'm anemic anyway <laughs> anyway right well no and that, and then how to what are what what can you eat like i want to in the book i want to have like recipes that you can make three or four different foods that you can combine in one that'll help us through it we also in most of these surgeries we have a lot of blood loss um and so i'm kind of finding ways to help you can how to build up your blood in your body in the chinese form of blood um and then also working with a lot of the bottom surgeries of trans men, like the phallusplasty and that sort of thing. It's pretty complicated and it's a multi-surgery multi -surgery procedures. Um, and I I'd like to learn more about that so I can help those that community out as well. Yeah, we a couple of years ago, a friend of ours, Ren, um, is a trans man and, and walked us through um, his multiple surgeries and skin grafts. Um, I, I I want to acknowledge that some um, some of our listeners to our podcast are um, wanting to learn more about the community and the experience of people in the community. And so when we're talking about the different surgeries, can you give our listeners kind of just a quick, you know, overview or definition of when you say vaginoplasty, like what does that actually mean? Okay, well, first off, we have to recognize, Kim, that some people can't have surgeries. Mm -hmm. Some people can't even be on hormone replacement therapy. Um, I've seen that too often. Um, they, it messes with uh, their kidney functions, messes with their liver function. So we have to acknowledge that there is actually a whole group of folks that have are limited to not being able to take these HRT therapy drugs. Um, with that being said, um, there are, um, I break it down into um, three zones of the body uh, for surgeries. So you'll have masculinization surgery of the face. You'll have feminization of the face. Um, trans girls will also have a tracheal shave. So this little bone right here will get shaved away. That can often be done while the face is being done. Um, then there's also top surgery. So they're gonna have an augmentation or a lift or something put in. Or on the opposite side, the trans man will have a top surgery and that'll be complete, uh, it's considered a body contouring. Um, it's a double mastectomy, um, but it's contouring in the medical community, it's known as body contouring. And the same thing for the um, top surgery for women. Um, it's still, it's breast augmentation. Medical terminology would just be like, you know, breast, you know, you're having an augmentation. Um, but, you know, some girls would be like, I got some titties. <laughs> um, and I, I'm happy for them. And But I'm also so cool to see, like, when I see my trans man walking without a shirt on, I'm like, yes, my trans partner, he's had his top surgery years ago. And he, I'm like, Morgan, show, I don't care if you got a cute belly, show it off. Okay, um, and then moving on down the rabbit hole, uh, then there's below the waist surgery. So you're gonna have like liposuction often um, done on both trans men and trans females. That will often involve removing a lot of the fat that's underneath the skin tissue around the abdomen and also inner thigh. Um, and then comes the kind of the more um, feminization or masculinization um, we could look at it as. Um, so, the, let's start with the trans men. You have a, a phalloplasty. So usually you're using soft in, in her thought, the inner arm or the inner thigh. 
um, sometimes the flank of the body, um, and they created graphs um, from that. Um, innervate it with some of the arteries that are from the body. They slowly will close up um, any kind of former vaginal opening that was, and they often at that point have had a complete hysterectomy, um, not partial, no tubes. They're going to be either everything, including the cervix, will probably be removed, um, and the uterus, uh, the uterus will be removed as well. And then um, once that's closed up, um, then they're going to use it. Uh, I think they're using an artery for the tube to create the long phallus tube. Now there's a couple of different bottom surgeries for trans men because you can actually have a prosthesis that is inflatable. So one of your artificial testes, testicles will be able to use as a pump and it'll kind of get up. Um, there's that and then there's also just the full um, phallus plasty where there's like multiple three or four part surgeries and infection is always the big one that's a big risk during all of that for trans females um you can have an orchidectomy which was just going to be removing your testes now this does not include scrotal talks and this is where it gets a little tricky this gets into the kink side of things some people will have uh, uh orchidectomy with uh, scrotal talk that also makes them um uh, they can't be a candidate for vaginal plasty because they actually need that skin from their scrotum to create the inner aspect of our vagina um of the vagina so that's the full vaginal plasty where you have an orchidectomy um and then you've got labial lips that are created you've got an internal that vagina that's functioning and your clitoris. Um, what they've done is they take about the 5,000 nerves that are at the tip of the uh, formal penis um, or clitoris. I always refer to my former penis as a clit anyways. Um, and I, they would put it um, down right there where, where the normal clitoris would be, uh, AFAB, um, assigned female at birth. Elton Clitoris would be. Those are the main surgeries. Um, there's also in the book, on the very second to last chapter, last chapter, like little things like there's a labioplasty because sometimes it doesn't look like a natural vagina in some cases. So that's where some specialists are going in there and creating a labio. Um, and then there's also a clitoral plasty or clitoral hood that will be made. And that hood is um, there to kind of um, often the way ours, ours is our clits are a little more exposed. Um, and so there's a little bit more of a clitoral hood that they'll build on there as well. Those are secondary surgeries. Um, sort of like um, the phallus plasty will have second two or three different surgeries. Uh, the vaginoplasty could have a secondary surgery. So, um, and other than that, those are sort of the list of the surgeries that I'm working on. Um, there is a throat surgery. There's a voice box surgery for trans women. Um, that's also in the paper that I'm writing. Um, yeah, so. Thank you so much for yeah. providing, but thank you for providing that information so that yeah. as we, we talk more about your book and about your work, it's, I just wanna make sure that we're providing that baseline of information of what, what we're actually talking about. So right. And we also have to understand there's so many folks that are not be able to transition because states and countries yeah. are making laws against us. Um, and it's funny because they can make laws against their body and us, but like we don't have a choice. Like we don't have a choice. And we have to recognize that Colorado is a sanctuary state. Like we have to look now at our country as places where where is safe and where isn't safe. Because my partner looks like a guy, but if they found out, they'd throw him in jail. Like just that basic reality is there in our country now. So um, yeah, we 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 talk a lot on. Um, 
on our podcast about, I think it's the 350 anti-trans legislation bills that has been an orchestrated, um, an orchestrated attempt to erase and control trans bodies. Um, In Colorado, the, I agree with you that we're absolutely a sanctuary state, um, which is wonderful that we are. And we get a lot of um, emails or even work that I do in my day job of folks that are coming here searching for community, searching for answers. And then also, just because we're a sanctuary seat, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy to get those appointments or access that health care. Right, it'll take eight months to get an appointment, eight right. to 10 months to get an appointment with a good HRT endocrinologist. And then another, like, make sure that you're on the HRT, if you're doing injectables, um, like it's going to lower the risk. Um, there's okay. So your podcast listeners understand there's a couple of different forms that you can take, um, uh, hormone replacement therapy, often known as HRT. Um, there'll be injectables, which is subcutaneously. And then there's also orally taken, um, and there's patches, um, and they are all very, and, and everybody's different. You know, just because this person is injecting and this person's got a patch on doesn't make them different. Um, or not enough trans. I've seen that too. Oh, you're not doing it right because you don't have an injection. You're not injecting. I don't want to inject. Um, that being said, um, there's just a lot of folks that it, it'll take 10 months here in the state. Now, you once you have a prescription, you can always go to Planned Parenthood and get that filled or go to GoodRx. That's another great place to get your stuff filled, but you still, it's 10 months. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. Um, well, tell... I, um... I'm looking at my, my, my list of questions here. Can we talk about your dancing a little bit about dancing and about yeah, let's talk about dancing. Yeah. That's always fun. So, um, yeah. yeah. Well, so as a, I'm not like, as they would call a trained, I don't know, dancer. I'm a dancer. Cause I, I moved to music. That's kind of how I view it. But do you feel like um, sharing maybe, you know, how, your dance has changed over the years, maybe through through your transition or maybe changed how you view vulnerability or your movement or things like that? Yeah, that's interesting. I actually think that we all dance. I think we're dancing in the womb. Think about yeah. it. We're a little, little, little thing just kind of slowly growing and slowly growing, slowly growing. We were moving. We were like, this is cool. Yeah, all right. And then all of a sudden we hit a wall. I was trying again. We're still moving. We were, we were born to, we were born moving. Um, so I think that's beautiful. Um, Alex, the way you're talking about, like, you know, I'm always dancing. I movement is in your soul. So, um, I started, I, um, was, I had a, a speech impediment. I couldn't actually um, talk for the first, like two years of my life. I had aphasia. Um, and it's often folks that there is some correlation of folks that have like autism and spectrum autism and dyslexia. They have a ten. They have a tendency to be trans. Um, it's only. It's not studied. It's just my partner and I talk about it a lot. Um, we couldn't talk. We couldn't explain what was going on in our bodies, or we had a learning disability. Um, anyways, I had a speech impediment, and then I could always move. I always so I had crazy energy, and I remember once. And I grew up in the mountains outside of Col- Manitou Springs, Colorado, and I um, remember. Um, my brother was doing a musical once and um, there was a dance teacher that said, you know, if your your children would like dance class, I will give them free. So I 
my brother and I were like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so we went in there and we learned ballet for about three, four months. And then summer came because it was Colorado and summer's summer. And so I just took off. And then I broke my wrist um, riding up home one day. And um, that weekend I had a full arm body cast all the way up my arm. And my mother had asked if I wanted to audition for a place called the Rocky Mountain Ballet Academy. And I was like, yeah, sure. And when I got into the audition, the first thing I thought of was not that I knew the steps, not that I was wearing tights or my dance belt was on wrong or whatever, but I felt like I was part of the woman that I was there. Like I remember early on that I had this connection to not only were there a large, a large amount of girls and young women there, but um, that I felt I could be part of that. Christina, and so I sort of stayed with, I sort of pardoned, I was 11. 11, okay. But I knew I was trans at like seven or eight. Yeah. I, I know then I can look back because there was a sweater. My mother was having problems with my gender. Um, she tried to get me a job working at a lesbian bar restaurant for a while. I worked at a lesbian restaurant as a kid for one summer until I was fired for being bullied by a drag queen. Um, so um, my connection to drag is not always healthy. So I'm learning to like make it better. But um, knowing as a 12 year old, who was questioning working in a gay restaurant to, at the time in the late seventies, you, sh you shouldn't be belittling, telling a little child that they really want to suck at something. You know, it's just, it was wrong. Um, but I, I was 11 when I really started to take dance, Kim, to answer your question. Um, and then I just took it because it was fun to move. And it was disciplined because I was so dyslexic and uncoordinated. I was so, and then I thought I had this big ego and I went out to audition and they were like, yeah, we'll take you. And then I went up to Seattle and they put me into their lower levels. And I was like, <laughs> and so I worked my way up there. And then I got that School of American Ballet at Juilliard for those two year summers. And then, um, and then I just realized that the city, the country and the world was so much bigger than this little com this company in Seattle. Um, and I was also being bullied there by a lot of the girls. Um, you know, they were trying to get me fired. So I was like, this is not healthy. You know, there's, there's a lot of hate in ballet world and there's a lot of um, uh, just unhealthy, toxic like settings, um, period, across the board, all ballet. Um, that's when I went to National Ballet of Canada. And that's when my dancing really started to lift up. I had had all that training for five or six years in Seattle, five years, and in School of American Ballet at Juilliard. And I started to really uplift my dancing a lot better, got at the solo roles, um, like things like Span, like Gypsy King in Don Quixote. I was doing that like my first year there. Um, and then I needed a surgery. I've had three surgeries on my feet, um, two to remove nerves and one to remove a bone out of my left ankle. And that left ankle bone was when I had that taken out. And I was just, I couldn't recover. I just, and I wasn't in a good, healthy place. The company was so large that you were 70 dancers. You had 35 male dancers and half of them, if you were under 5'7", did this. If you were over 5'7", you did that. And you were just, it was, didn't matter. It did it. And so finally, after two or so years there, I left, joined a choreographic company for a year, started working by building my choreographic skills, learning what it felt like not to be in a big company. And then it came down to Virginia, back into the States and lived there for uh, three years. And there I had to go through another surgery on my ankle, on my foot. And at that point I was, I was 27 and I was, I felt like I was about 50. 
it took me like 20 minutes to wake up in the morning and walk because I was in so much pain. Um, so I just, I quit. And then I became a teacher. And in, as a teacher, I became a massage therapist. And I realized as a massage therapist, I wanted to help people because I was always doing something. See, one of the hardest things for dancers to do is that when they retire mm -hmm. um, is find their applause. Mm -hmm. Where's your applause? Like, that's all you worked for. You worked all your decades to find applause. And now you're left to be a waiter or a server or a waitress. It was, it's just hard. It's very hard at 30 to like realize you're retiring from a career because you're too old. And then realizing that you just started your life because you haven't gone through college. Most of us hadn't gone through college. So I didn't know how to study. My dyslexia had ruled me. So I went in the massage and started making people feel good which led me to the job I have now, which um, I started studying acupressure back in 2000 and never stopped and just kept on going after the Chinese medicine and the beauty of it. And um, yeah, I just, I love doing acupuncture. And then the dancing, um, the dancing is just something I love to be able to do and offer people that won't ever have a chance to do it, you know? Yeah. Some people just don't, will never have a chance to take a formal ballet class, especially if they're gay. Like if you're gay or if you're a gay male, sure. If you're a lesbian female, like there's an, a man that I spoke with, trans male out in New York, Michael. And he actually, want, he was a jazz dancer and he transitioned. And the moment he transitioned, once he came out as gay to this jazz community, this dance company, um, as lesbian, he, no one wanted to be his dressing roommate. Oh. Like this is in the jazz professional jazz community of our, our country. And so as he started his transition, then what he noticed was, and this is how he contacted me, was because he was perceived as a male, people would assume he had done that. Right. And oh, you had done that role. Remember, you've done that, like you had because you were a guy. And so inherently there's one, uneducated people in the ballet world, period. Um, and if they are, they're staying at universities, right? They're not going to go into the professional ballet world. And secondly, there's, then you've got the blind leading the blind. You've got people that are uneducated. Um, and often a lot of them are, like, I remember posting something on a social media group on Facebook about to dance teachers. I'm like, do you introduce yourself as with your gender pronouns? And and this one person and this cis man, he was, he just called me out. He, he said it was, you know, and it was toxic language. And, um, and the administrative literally banned him right away. So, um, and and that, you know, that sort of thing, you just, you have this brainwashed, and I, that's how I, how I really look at our culture, is that it's a very brainwashed to believe that white is right, black is wrong, and if you're not this gender, like gender itself is a caste system, mm -hmm. period. If you're born AFAB, assigned female at birth, then you are that, and if you're AMAP, you are that and if you deviate from either of those who even in a non-religious household sometimes it can be very tough um so yeah it's the ballet world i transitioned later um and that's when i started to really see the inherent discrimination in the ballet world when all of a sudden i was i was working like 30 hours one week and the next year i was only given eight hours of work um and then i couldn't get a job 
um, in Denver proper at any ballet training schools. Um, I ended up getting a job in a, a, a bougie ballet school that trained uh, that catered to white rich women. Um, and it's still in existence. It's moved to changed ownership past COVID, but um, it still exists. Um, and most of those students don't come to my house studio. I also don't have any mirrors in my studio. This mirror right here is the only thing I have in my mirror in my office as a student mirror because my trans males and trans females, it's hard to watch themselves in the mirror. Mm. And, 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 it, and dance is proprioception, learn through feeling, and a mirror just trains your eyes to look at a lie. Mm. Because yeah. your eyes are flipping it upside down, switching it up, stick it to the back of your head. It's yeah. not our form. It, uh, all right, ballet is not our form. It's the epitome of discrimination. I, I grew up in, you know, in fitness studios. So there oh. were mirrors all the way around. And then, but the, but this, the message is you need to have your brain. I've even said it before. I'm um, where, where you're like the visual feedback. And, and so if you're for a trans person, you know, I, I had to look at myself every single time I taught. And it was like, some days were brutal. And so I, then I would use the dance to get through that. Yeah. Um, just I get it. I understand that. I understand that completely. Yeah. I get it. I'm a little like, I'm going to take But also the gym, the gym is also, de we have to decolonize fitness. Like, let's put it, let's play it. There's a, someone on Instagram called Decolonizing Fitness. And I don't know where they're located in the, out in this country, but I know um, they're in the U.S. And they're badass. They're just, they, um let's decolonize the mind structure take these bloody mirrors off the wall and if we're going to really put them there then your coaches should have body analysis training because mm -hmm. looking at a mirror is only going to train you to look at a mirror but if right. you have somebody who understands let's look at the structure and how that person's doing a squat or how they're look well that that instructor just has to have a really good eye on what's you know what's functionally healthier um and the mirrors are often like trying to teach a dancer <laughs> i've taught kids all my life until a few years ago and trying to teach a dancer to get their eyes off of the mirror is one of the most hardest things <laughs> and it is so hard so what i ended up doing was i started teaching the class away from the mirrors and by the second week the kids are stronger they're yeah. here they're stronger here in their heart they're stronger they're stronger yeah. because guess what they know it yep they feel, they feel it. it and they can feel it yep so i'm not a big fan and i did a, a panel at vibe gym which i really want to start joining and going working out at vibe gym um but i the mirrors alex i totally get that um i don't like them but um I, that was one of the things I said, I, my mirror, I don't like my mirrors, my mirrors take my trans men and make them feel really bad because often I don't want them to wear a binder. And for anybody who's listening, binder is often there to make it look upon the AFAB body like they don't have chest um, or any breast tissue. So, um, and that's really hard one, binders are really tough on the ribs, like really hard on the ribs mm -hmm. um, because the ribs are a basket. They're not, um, they're not a set thing. They're, they move around. They three different sets of muscles in between each rib and it's floating on your, it's the, it's a basket, a big, it's beautiful basket. <laughs> um, but you know, like that sort of thing is getting away from the mirrors and feeling it. And, yeah. Yeah. 
just gonna pause for a second on that. <laughs> pause on that because it no, it is. It's really mirrors are toxic um, yeah. for the for the trans community, um, unless we're feeling good, and then we'll be like, hey, watch you, you know. Right. And then we're like, yeah, we look damn good, right? But then, you know, there's those days like my partner, he doesn't look in the mirror. Yeah, you know, we have one mirror. He doesn't look. Yeah, in in group fitness, um, what I've taught instructors and it I, i'll do like instructor training and um i usually because the studio is right have mirrors all the way around um but then it's more energetically i feel connecting to to mirror image teach oh and yeah so you know but at the same time like you can still see yourself across the room like up on the stage um but so there's that but um yeah the mirror it's you're doing a dance with the mirror too. I, I felt like. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't put a mirror on stage when you dance on stage. No. You just, you just don't, even in the ballet etudes, I've done that ballet. It's a beautiful, brilliant ballet to do. And I'm glad I have it on my resume. Um, and it's, it's the culmination of a ballet class. So it's like a 50 minute ballet or a 60 minute ballet. And it, and it is everything from taking a ballet class all the way through the very end, jumping and all the big stuff. Um, with no like this is a ballet act one this is a ballet act two no this is just one full contemporary ballet on ballet class and it's done and it's very it's very strong it's a hard ballet to do um but you don't see any mirrors on stage yeah you know like you just don't and that the hardest thing is really to get those dancers off of it and when is a mirror used like we have to ask ourselves as instructors but also as dancers when is a mirror used like am i going to use my mirror to find the line of my arm with that other dancer if i if the and I, if the director says i need these arms all at the same height and you look in the mirror and look in the mirror look. but otherwise most of the time it should be and this goes back to my earlier comment the blind leading the blind most of these ballet instructors don't have an education there's no formal education on ballet dancers and the way you do it is you go through the industry and then you hopefully find a place along the way that you can work and build your teaching and or choreography or whatever um but i yeah it's mirrors are horrible horrible i hate them <laughs> yeah that's when i have to put makeup on but i don't do that anymore so <laughs> um so let's go back to your to your book um is there anything how when did you when did you, did you release it it was released i want to say when maybe end of april beginning of may okay there yeah. were some little complications with it and then um it's pu it's published through q publishing house which is a queer publishing house here in denver so just to let your listeners know there are great some great queer publishing houses um this was their first nonfiction book um and the book i break the book down into um like preparing for your surgery um and then what that first would like your first seven days you're just trying to heal and then the next seven days so i broke it down into seven days first i was going to do three weeks three weeks three weeks three weeks because the first 12 weeks are really big yeah. um and and there needs to be stuff they need to know people need to know what's going on because um so the first week you have um for about six days you have packing in and a catheter in and then they remove your catheter and um 
Well, first they do the magic trick and they pull out 15 feet of packing out of your vagina. And then it's done. And then you're like, whoa. And then they, um, then they go, okay, they pull your catheter out, but they leave a tube in your bladder and they fill it with about a cup and a half of water. And you're just like, <laughs> and then, and so the, I wrote it right in the book that this is the second test. Okay. The first test is you woke up from surgery. The second, the first test, the second test is that your bladder still works because okay. often there'll be stenosis, a hardening or a collapse of the ureter, the blood, the tube that re runs from the bladder to the outside world. And that, um, that, so they found that if they leave a, um, a catheter in for seven days, it's actually healthier for that to stay there. They pull that out, your test is done, and then you're sent off to learn how to dilate. And uh, most people don't realize that when you, there's a couple of different surgeries for bottom surgery. You can have a, a full depth vaginal cavity, vagina, or you can have um, a shallow depth. And shallow depth, I think Denver Health puts it best. They, it's a divot. It's about a two inch divot, um, your vagina is, but mine's a full functional vaginal cavity. Um, you have to start keeping that open. Um, and that's really hard. Um, and they, people have told you this, but it's really hard because you are having to do it three times a day for about 15 minutes and you're having to do it for 12 weeks, three times a day. Wow. And um, I, I think it tapers off around eight weeks or six weeks, six weeks. I think you taper down or something. Um, I really should read my book again. Um, <laughs> and um, I'm just too busy doing other things. So, um, and then you still have to dilate for that. And I, I was talking at the center on Colfax a couple of months ago about my book. And one of my friends actually asked, she was, when does it stop hurting to dilate? I'm like five months, right around five months. So you have to dilate through a lot of pain. And so um, I don't know if you've ever done rope burns, you know, when you just, yeah. so it feels like that every time you dilate um, for 20 minutes. And so lidocaine is really encouraged, um, some muscle relaxants, the pelvic floor of an assigned a natal male is small, smaller than natal females. So like, say for instance, the natal female, um, their vaginal cavity, their, their pelvic hole is like this big. For a natal male, it's about that big. So now you've not just added a, you've added an extra hole there and now it's tighter. And the, the pelvic floor is really holds all your guts in. So I go through that in the book. I talk about like questions asked. And then what I love is there's a chapter, I forget what chapter it is. I'll look at it right now. Um, and it's, it's a friends and family chapter. Chapter um, 11 is a friends and family chapter. So when we need the most help. You know, that first two weeks are vital to have someone there in the house. Um, and then the second, the, those third and fourth week, it'll be helpful to um, have someone who's ready to like, that's when I would have people bring me food. Um, but it's still, it hurts for you to sit for the first five months, like just sitting, just sitting like you, we take it for granted, but it's, they've rearranged our whole pelvic floor. Um, renovated the basement and made it look gorgeous. Um, yeah. And it was like, it, we have, that's what we, have. and so I break that down. I talk about ice packs. I talk about what clothes to wear. And then on top of it all, because I've been treating trans folks for so long, um, I put a lot of advice from friends and a lot of advice from patients. So one, one gal, um, she actually suggested, like, keep it in for an extra little while. 
she told me her dilating routine and I was like, no, I did not do three hours every day for the first month. Like that is so much pain. But wow. the general rule is about 15 minutes, three times a day, and you have to move up in dilators. So I have pictures of the dilators in there. I also have add pictures of other dilators that are options in there. Um, I talk about exercises to help open the pelvic floor and teach the, the young, um, those new vaginas and neo-vaginas how to work. And then what no one really told me was like, I use my water bottle as an example. You don't realize it, but like, this is the feeling the size of your clit is every time you walk for the first like six months. It is like, it's this big. I'm not joking. It is so, it feels so big. It feels like some buzzing bees in your underwear. I've looked down. <laughs> oh my God. And then, uh, so they do, so they, they do leave a small amount of um, erectile tissue. Okay. It, it is a small amount and you can feel it a lot. Those first yeah. few months, like you can really feel it a lot. And then it tapers down, but your clit has a mind of its own. And, um, yeah, it just buzzes and buzzes. I thought I, I looked down, I had ants in my underwear. I'm like, what is going on here? And yeah, it was just my clit was, and that, and I wrote in the book, that is a good sign. Yes. Because you want that. Yeah. It might be aggravating and sometimes it will be dysphoric because you will think you have a little bit of an erection and you're like, damn it. <laughs> I did not ask for this, Janet. And then you look down and it's not there. <laughs> And it's just not there. And then you're like, this is finally, this is great. But it is, it, those first six months, there's a big learning curve. You're learning how to use your vagina, your, your, all that, how to wipe, how to do this and how to have an orgasm. And then, then they say, oh, at 12 weeks, you can have an orgasm. Oh my God. That was so painful. Um, and some girls cannot, um, have any, uh, orgasms. So I talk about that okay. and I talk about it in a very serious manner. Talk about like playing. Now I know some girls who got this and they are um, asexual and they are an ace and they identify as ace, but they never identified with the, what they were had. So they had a shallow depth procedure and it helped them a lot. Um, but the clitoris is just that whole thing and all of that and orgasm and touching and also and I, I don't, I'm not gonna, the book is, there's a lot of information in the book that we needed that isn't out there um and i'd like to do that for my trans male patients as well and kind of write like this is what it's going to look like because a lot of trans men i know um have top surgery and then what happens is they end up um having limited range of motion because they don't want their they were towing this and and they're holding their shoulders in and they were afraid it might hurt their scar or make scars worse and so what ends up happening is i get my trans male patients in here and they're really stuck in their shoulders and i have to take a couple of visits to open their shoulders up and go you need to stretch these out yeah before we can do any scar care on them because the there's just too much tension there um so you know letting letting our friends know and family members know that there's a a way you can go without you're not alone yeah. i guess is the way i kind of look at it so but the bottom surgery is a big one um yeah. and there's just a lot of renovation that happens downstairs so real quick, back to when you were saying um, with the pelvic floor with neonatals and, and females. So when you, you said this and that, so just for people listening, so would you say, you know, for, for females, it's like the- So we're like, you'd say like the female pelvis um, is there created so it, it can have a birth canal. Well, like how how big for people just listening without- Oh gosh, I want to say it's like 
they say it's like a five inch circumference versus like a two, three inch circumference. Okay. Thank you for, it is, it's a narrower, it's a narrower space. Not saying that that doesn't differ from body to body. Everybody is unique and everybody is different, but generally natal males have a smaller pelvic floor opening because it's really just for our poo hole. Yeah. Cause we're just a big donut. <laughs> A good See, I have to I have to ask about your process in writing and because I understand that the the book I mean obviously it's it is a lot of your experience that you're sharing how did you approach the vulnerability of sharing this and putting it like I have trouble writing a blog post and here you have a book about your your experience how was that process for you i so i i, I talk about it in the introduction um your the my my personal language is going to be in italicized language so i'll be like giving you some some personal stuff and then at the end of each chapter there are these nourishing nuggets that um i've been given gifts from patients of mine told me what to expect and how to experience that so put those in there as well. So uh, I, I, I can, that's a really good question. I, I just wanted to make sure people weren't alone hmm. because I, I, as someone who's got a degree and has practiced medicine, like the first thing I did was I walked in when I started to learn my dilation, the first thing I did is I'm like, show me on that pelvic floor. And she pulled out this like physical pelvis and the, bottom of the pelvic floor. I'm like, tell me where they made that hole. So I knew in here what to think about it. Um, and I'm also, I see a lot of patients and they, we talk about it too. We'll talk about it so I can write from not their experiences, but how I felt about that. Um, and I, you know, I probably should look, but most of it, it's just like, I'll have personal thoughts um in moving like here's one on page 79 personal thoughts and moving up in dilators one way to break through some discomfort is to slowly increase the wider dilator during the first five minutes of your dilation time um but what happens is your pelvic floor gets really swollen from dilating and you have to do that three times a day and then you have to do that and then you're using your pelvic floor all the time so like i wanted people to know like what they're in store for because um it's just not i think it's time we had better representation post-operative care. And when I go to all these bookstores, I've been to bookstores in Portland, San Francisco, Seattle, and their, their trans and LGBT bookshelves are like, okay, better than ours here. But then I'm like, where's your wellness and health? There's like one shelf. Mm. And I'm like, no, this is not. So that's why I'm dedicating like this next book of just like, how do we help the community? taking proper herbs. Some of us in the trans community are so crunchy granola that it's against our body to take that HRT. But God damn it, I just don't feel right. And you try it and you feel great. And you're like, oh, finally, now I get it. Dang, now what am I doing to my body? Well, well, let's guess what? We can reverse some of that and we can offset some of that. And I think that that's really a key component that's missing in our community is, is like that post-operative care. Um, and, and pre, you know, because Chinese medicine is very misogynist. So um, I got to break through that barrier too. And, and that's something I have to deal with more so regularly than my dance, because at least I have a dance studio and, and I have treatment rooms, but 
Chinese medicine is very misogynistic across in, in its in its development. Um, so, like there were tra there are trans people, and we've been around. I think one of the biggest books I read I'm reading now is the great LGBT speeches um, because we are not we've been here for so long. Right. Albert Cashier was a trans male who fought in the Revolutionary War. Like these people have been here for so long. It's not like we weren't. We've just been made to be erased or not feel like we're there. And mm -hmm. I say, I'm done. Done being made to feel that way. And if I'm going to spend the rest of my days, I'll be writing books about trans healthcare and alternative healthcare. I think um, a Andrea Shanker wrote a book about um, queer healthcare activism. Where is it? We need it. And that's where I'm like, that's what I've got to do. That's where I'm, I've got to help. Yeah. Yeah. Have you heard of the book uh, Decolonizing Wellness? Um, no, I'm writing it down right now. It's one of my favorites um, by Dahlia Kinsey. Um, she basically, oh, that's a horrible description. Or... <laughs> it's our screen went blurry. Yeah, okay. it does. Oh, I guess it must not be allowed to show the book or something. I don't know. It's Decolonizing Wellness by Dahlia Kinsey, a QT BIPOC center guide to escape the diet trap, heal yourself image, go. and achieve body liberation. There we go. I yes. I took yes. My... Yeah. And that's where I'm at. That's what I'm talking about is just deep breaking it down because it's so, it's so rudimentary and based in based in discrimination so yeah that's i love it i'm gonna order it now okay <laughs> i'm gonna order the lgbtq speeches, speeches yeah <laughs> yeah i'm halfway through and it's like it's really some powerful stuff there's just things you didn't know about there's this one talk this one lesbian gave in front of these ministers and she just rips them apart and it was in 1972 and i'm just like this is what we need we need to know that we're not alone and, and not the not, it's not just a gay and lesbian movement but it's a lgbt movement and think about it and i and i i, I lived through the hiv epidemic and i was a young child i was a young kid then but i think that what we're seeing today and the last 20, 30 years of the trans communities really come out of the fact that we lost so many gay men and they probably would have raised children. They could have had households and the medical community made sure that they did it. And so decolonizing the healthness, the wellness and all that, you know, it, I think it's a beautiful, I think it's, I think that's what we need to do and recognize that the discrimination within that field. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think I, I just have such gratitude for what you've shared, for writing a book about it, for, and I think too of, of, of maybe cisgendered straight parents that are raising trans kids and what they're gonna need to know to care for their child. Um, I know that access and learning that process is, I mean, I, I, I don't know how much you want to share about it, but it's, it's quite overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. It's navigating the healthcare system and you get it. It's, yeah. 
Yeah, and well, and also then not like I remember working in a support group and helping a support group out once, and this person was really um, this trans girl was being insulted by the medical community, and I I stopped them because I was still just finishing grad school. I said, "Do you understand what HIPAA is?" And they were like, "Yeah, that medical thing." I said, "Yeah, but it's there to protect you." And I said, "And it actually is there so you can have a weapon." to weaponize against the medical community. I said, if you do not like what someone is saying, you can report them. No different people can report me if they wanted to. Um, but you have to report at the door. I explain what's happened. I've had one patient do this to one medical community and the door, the state just kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, we didn't find anything wrong with this practice. Um, so you do have strength in your corner, but also know it's we are, as Kim said, we are in a sanctuary state. And yes, it's very, Denver is super queer, Boulder, Elmont, Longmont, like this whole front range, fairly um, um, open-minded about it, but you're gonna have medical practitioners that don't want to treat you. Mm. And I say to those people, as much as you're really dysphoric, you gotta walk away from that because that is some toxic stuff. That is really toxic and it needs to be reported regularly. Unfortunately, if you're not in a sanctuary state, most of those medical communities are just like, who cares? Right. Um, but if we, it, but every report and every, everything that we feel harmed in needs to be reported. It just has to. Yeah. It's like that, that quote, I, it's, I feel like it's, I see it a lot, maybe just cause it's, but like where, you know, the professor at, at the medical school, um, one of the students asked, like, you know, like, well, what if we don't want to treat, you know, a trans person? He's like, get a new job. Don't yeah. be a doctor. Don't be yeah. a doctor. If you don't want to tra treat, then you are not in the right place. Yeah. Um, there was somebody I went to grad school who um, they were all in their 20s and he was a gay man and he came, found out that I was coming out. And he's like, sweetie, you know, the problem is you're just too old. You know, and I was like, whoa, <laughs> like, wow. Um, and then later on in that same year, he was talking about how, like, he couldn't treat a fat person. He couldn't no. treat a fat person. And I'm like, you are in the wrong freaking industry because that's what you're going to get people that are overweight and obese. And guess what? They're looking to find some help for themselves as well. And all we can do is offer that assistance, but sit there and also, and I'm a firm believer of this, is that I am not the person practicing the medicine. The medicine is in you and the medicine is deeply. So when I stick an acupuncture needle, I'm just touching your medicine. Um, mm -hmm. And it's important to know that. And I know that doesn't, and that doesn't fall on very good ears when you think of, if I'm trans and, and the medicine is me, so I should have my vagina. But there are certain things that we can't help up here that aren't correct. And so um, medical um, intervention is available for us and it's important that it is. Um, I don't need to have my chest done. You know, I don't need um, to have, you know, my, I wouldn't mind my face done, but I don't have the money. Um, but like those little things, like I just like, I don't, I'm, I'm happy, I'm strong with who I am. And we also have to teach young trans people that too because there are, some of them are kind of bitter um, and, and it's, it's hard. I transitioned later in life and that's a, that's a big difference in transitioning when you're in your twenties or in your teens. How old were you when you transitioned? Oh, I was in my mid forties or mid forties. I was in grad school and I was doing, I'd been giving acupuncture, I'd be giving massage for so many years and I was giving so much care to people and I was never taking the medicine myself. 
never swallowed the pill. And finally, I just kept on drinking myself into a bottle and just kept cross-dressing and drinking myself into a bottle. And I went to AA and I didn't feel good. And I met somebody that found out I was like cross-dressing underneath my clothes. And she was like, maybe you're trans. And I was like, <laughs> there's a thing and what? so i found a gender support group and i was like there's a thing i'm not alone but what that's that gender support group had a lot of ageism in it i stuck with it for a couple of years because i needed to know i wasn't alone and then once i got the strong strength in myself to get myself up and go on but some of us can't always find our own strength and that's what those support groups are there for um, yep that yeah you are magic, Christina. I am yeah. just. I feel the same way. I yeah. just, I feel such gratitude towards you for sharing your story and just getting to know you. And I, I, it, I'm listening to you, Christina, and I am thinking about my my spouse, my partner, my we do use wife, even though Alex is non-binary, and you also transitioned in your 40s. Mm -hmm. Um. And in some ways, I'm so fascinated by it because you, even though you've always been who you are, there was the projection of this other gender that you were living as. And so you've had these experiences of living both sides of the gender binaries. And I just, I'm fascinated by that. Yeah. I'm also fascinated by the, um, the way when we do transition later, how our sexuality changes too. Oh, there's a conversation. Because really there's like that in itself, like, yeah, my gender has changed. Just because I'm trans female and I went from what I was to what I am, which I actually never really thought I was. I was just, I'm this and always been this. Now I'm correct. But like now that now we these are two separate things, right? Sexual, you're sex like I found myself sexually kind of one, I went through being an ace at first to moving into more sexuality and identity, my sexual identity and what I identified as what I thought was sexual and interesting to me to putting it away. And then just after my surgery, what really happened was seeing what happened after that too. So there's, I think there's a beautiful coming, of, we don't have that coming of age thing in our society anymore, right? We just don't like graduating high school is not it. Graduating college is not it. But I think there's something, um, coming of age when you transition later you just move into your life and you have a perception of others and different things like i can tell how a room is going to react i can tell how a room is going to react um i remember i was at a colorado women's chamber of commerce once and i was a member there for a year and that was never worked for me and this man came and he was trying to like plug his thing and i turned to him and i asked him something and you could see his eyes just and steam started coming out of his ears and he would just you know and he just he did not want to talk to me like that i've never and that's when you realize like it's a dartboard right we can't we can't we're in the tar we're in the center and we're not the target but we're in the center and we can talk to the people on the outside of that group we can't talk to the next level out because we just can't we just can't but we can ask those people that are in the middle Kim, you're a perfect example, then you can explain to these individuals who believe that, you know, correcting somebody's gender is wrong or right. Um, and you're the one that can make that language happen. I can't. Yeah. I mean, we've, I talk about this a lot on this podcast about when we talk about allyship, that number one, allyship is not meant to be comfortable. Yeah. Um, 
And one of the things to me that is so important about being an ally is that if I am, because I never want to co-op someone else's voice or experience either, because as we were talking about before we hit record, I don't understand. I will never understand what your experience, what's inside of you. I can listen and I can empathize and I can be an ally. But part of where allyship is so important is if I am centering your experience and Alex experience and kids experience of what they're going to need, I'm not seen as being advantageous, right? And so people will tend to believe the ally before they will believe the person that's in the center of it. Yeah. And this is the thing with, with allyship that gets tricky because if you've been socialized as, and I'm just going to use my upbringing as an example, if you've been socialized as a white woman, you have had it drilled into you to be complacent, to be perfect and to be kind. And allyship is not those things. Right. And so that's where, you know, if anybody, you know, when anybody listens to this podcast, I try to be very consistent in that that it is okay for you not to be liked if you are using that voice to center the need of someone else. Right. And you are not going to be liked, period. And you have to learn to be okay with that. Yeah. And 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 it's it's actually talking about it, Kim, that makes that wheel start to turn. I hope because, so. You know, I think that it's um like I had never thought about it that way. Like um I didn't know like yeah, my sister is like super proactive and my brother is shied away from me and I grew up with him, but there's a, a form of embarrassment with him. And so I think there's some insecurities within the ally community. So they don't want to spit or they don't want to shake the boat or they don't like there's something that's happening that they're just uncomfortable with. And so um, like it's okay to be uncomfortable. It is. Welcome to being in the trans community. Like, <laughs> like, welcome to being in the gay community. Like, you're not even this. There's still homophobia that's out there. Oh, you're gay. Like, it's I watched Denver Gay and Lesbian Flag Football League this weekend, and I love it. I'm a sponsor for the t league, and it's just a great place to watch LGBT folks be themselves. And I told my partner, I said, I need some, I need rainbows this weekend. I need rainbows. And so we sat out there in the morning on Sunday morning and watched them play flag football. And we, I mean, people don't know, but Denver has like a, two national champs, flag football champs um, in a, in, last year they won in Chicago at Chicago pride. Um, so like we have some, a, a bad assery of um, queer people in the city. Um, it's just, um, there's just so many people coming in, seeing it as a sanctuary state. There's just so much happening. There's so much dynamics happening here that um, all we can do is keep asking for more allies and, and and explain to them what it looks like and how is you know stand up for this person and you know call them out for being homophobic. And people don't like that. No, they don't. No. <laughs> they don't like being called transphobic, homophobic, and or misogynistic. Or like my friend will be like, "Oh, she had a really nice," and I'm like, "Larry." <laughs> you know where you're going with this is wrong and he's like but i got it and i'm like I, no no and that's um yeah yep who yep <laughs> christina man i have enjoyed this time with you 
Yeah, I'm sorry we missed it last time, but I'm so glad we could like reschedule it. And Maggie was instrumental with that. So Outfront Magazine, y'all are kicking it. So I love Outfront, and we'll we'll um, our listeners are are hopefully getting more and more familiar with Outfront and Maggie and Addison and what they do for voices in our community. It is just unbelievable. And Christina, what you are doing, I'm just from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. You're welcome. And I just, I hope this, I hope I can get some more patience because this is a really slow year right now. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, yeah. Do a shout out really quick. Oh, you. shout out to Healing Roots Acupuncture and its lowest rates in the city. That's all I'm going to say. We'll say, so, um, we can, we'll get all the content information and make sure we yeah, I'll send it to you. Y'all have it. Well, yeah. See, you contact me through Queer Dance Project. And I use that email very infrequently because, uh, because I'm, I am Healing Roots Acupuncture. Queer Dance Project is just a, a branch of what we, although it's a separate entity, um, it is still just a separate branch. And um, I've, you know, I've been attacked online by trans folks um, for opening and being trying to offer services. So I tend to like be like, let's just pass the word naturally. Like I remember one year I was um, offering a free clinic, acupuncture clinic to anybody that was trans and it was on, on uh, Trans Day of Remembrance, it was the 20th or 19th or something of November. Um, for your listeners who aren't aware, Trans Day of Remembrance, November 20th, and it's when we kind of calculate all our, and name all our dead um, that have died around the world from trans hate um, and misgendering and all that stuff. But um, I remember offering this clinic online and this this woman just started berating me and coming after me and beating me up. And, and, and it was, um, it was on a, it was on an LGBT group. And then I had uh, another social worker, a licensed practitioner, medical practitioner pipe in, and then another one piped in and another one. So I had three professionals that were there going, you don't understand what Christine is trying to do. She's trying to offer this. And so ever since I've kind of launched Queer Dance Project, I've actually stepped away because I've gotten so much animosity from within the community. And I understand that it's people have asked me, why do you think that is? And I one person said, well, it's easier to punch sideways than up. Um, and and I, I didn't really think about that. Um, but I know that it is there is other trans businesses in the city and they're doing well. Um, and it's, you know, just running a medical practice like this is tough. So I don't really push the dance business that much. I actually stopped doing it YouTube because one of my dancers was taking it a little too far and um, he was taking his fetish into the studio. So I just put the kibosh on that. So like having to under like deal with some of the population that's not educated is also some of the problems I run into. Um, and so that's also like, that's a hurdle that I have to internalize as a dance teacher and be like, no, I just don't own this dance studio. I also, own this community center because like I had a trans, a, a, a cutie pock trans girl come into my door two Mondays ago. She was wearing a dress and you could tell us that she was houseless. And I was, she wanted that talk and she and everybody behind me was ready to like punch. And I said, no, this woman just wanted to be heard. Right. You know, like we just, we're just not heard. Um, we're often homeless or houseless and we just don't have a safe environment. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely interesting the dance project is, but I love teaching here. It's really fun. Um, if I can sustain it, I will. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. 
Yeah, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Y'all are amazing. <laughs> um, well, we'll, we'll pause um, recording listeners okay. with us. We'll be right back. We'll, we'll have oh. a part two sometime. A part two, absolutely. <laughs>